Well, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be, in ver- we'll be all throughout the chapter this morning, but we'll be looking at verse 14 through 19 uh, as our uh, text where we'll begin. Let's read responsively. I'll begin in 14, we'll begin together in 15, and then read every other verse together down through verse number 19. Now, this passage is a little bit uh, wordy uh, beyond just how we would normally speak in today's terms. And so we'll work hard to stay together as a church here, okay? Verse 14, Paul says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Together, verse 15, Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things." Our, uh, our theme this year, Stand for Jesus, we're, we have four series of sermons we're going to do on Sunday morning throughout the year. Uh, this week we will kick off the first series, and the title of that series is Stand with Conviction. Now if you're going to stand with conviction in a convincing way, then you must be principle-based. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Our principles, our principles. If we could boil down our principles to three principles, what would those principles be? What are those three things, Christian, that you should be the most passionate about? We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to talk about what it is where we need to take our stand and how to do so with conviction. Let's pray. Lord, help us today as we dive into the Bible to let your word speak to us. Lord, we live in a time of great uncertainty. We live in a time where many Christians cower in fear instead of standing for Christ. And so, Lord, help us today to be affirmed by your word that you've called us to stand. And there are some things that we should never, ever compromise on. There are some areas where our stand should always stay strong. But, Lord, we need to be able to believe these things with all our heart. And so, Lord, help us with that today. Move in each life and each heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last week we introduced our theme for 2021, Stand for Jesus. We talked about how that persecution against Christians is already in full force in places like North Korea and in places like the Middle East. We looked at how the average American Christian is soft, entitled, and comfortable. Most Christians would rather be carnal than Christ-like. Carnal than Christ-like. In the message last week, I laid out for you Satan's two-stage strategy against the Lord's church. Number one, I said he rocks the Christian church asleep. With comfort and complacency, he creates an environment of lukewarm 
Christians. Now, let me just reiterate, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. I live a pretty comfortable life. I drive a nice car. I use a really nice computer. I've got a pretty decent smartphone. I live in a nice house. I've got nice clothes. I have nice things, and I'm comfortable. In fact, I like being comfortable. I'm thankful that the car I drive in the winter in Connecticut has heated seats. Thank God for heated seats. Amen? And uh, I lived in the southeast for a long time, and I thanked God for air conditioning. I don't know how people get along in the southeast without air conditioning. I thank God for the comfortable things that I have in life. But can I tell you that while there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, comfortability creates, if we're not careful, complacency. And complacency is a sin. You see, we're to be content with the things we have, but we're not to be content with who we are as a Christian, and where we are in our walk with Christ. There should be a spirit of discontentment in those areas as we always push and strive to be more like Christ. Christians in America as a whole are lukewarm. What does it mean to be lukewarm? If you went out to the coffee area this morning and you pulled the lever to get coffee in your cup and you held it up to your lips and it was not hot or cold, but it was lukewarm, you would have a problem with that. Sometimes I stop at a coffee shop and I order a hot coffee. Other times I stop at a coffee shop and I order a iced coffee. But I've never gone to a coffee shop and said, can you make it lukewarm? Can you make it, please? I, I, like, I just want it to be lukewarm. Give me the best cup of lukewarm coffee you have. No, you spew that back into the cup and you'd say, boy, uh, the preaching at White Oak Baptist Church is okay. The singing at White Oak Baptist Church is pretty good, but the coffee is terrible. And you know what? I think a lot of God views a lot of American Christians as lukewarm. If there's been one battle in my Christian life for 30, uh, let's see, 33 years of being a Christian, if there's one battle that I have had to fight against in my own life, it's a battle of being complacent and lukewarm. It's a battle of just going along to get along. It's a, a battle of living my life in a way that's good enough for everyone else to accept, but not good enough for the Lord. And what many Christians do is they look at the space between them and the world and they gauge their Christian life based on how much better they are than the culture at large. And if there's enough gap uh, there where everyone else accepts them as, oh yeah, you're better than the world, and oh yeah, you're doing great, then we, uh, we put a check mark on our Christianity is okay. My friend, it's time to take our eyes off the culture. It's time to put our eyes on Christ and realize the gap between us and Christ and march closer to the Lord. The American church is complacent. The American church is soft. The American church is entitled. The American church is comfortable. And my friend, Satan has the American church right where he wants it. Today in America, there are places that call themselves churches that are having what they're calling church services, but really they're rock concerts. And the preacher gets up and he gets up there in his cool looking clothes, his skinny jeans. You will never see me in skinny jeans. And for that, you ought to say amen. And um, amen. I'm a fat boy. You don't want to see a fat boy in skinny jeans. Um, you don't want to see any man in skinny jeans. But uh, pastors get up in their skinny jeans and their low-cut shirts with their chest hair hanging out and their gold chain for Jesus. And they get up there and they give what's equivalent to a TED Talk and they mix in a Bible verse and people go in and they feel real good about themselves and they go home and they're not going to preach on sin. They're only going to talk about how you can make it one more week and it's a Joel Olstein-style ministry. And my friend, that is exactly the problem. Churches like that across this country are full of 
thousands of people on a normal non-COVID Sunday in churches that preach the Word of God. Boy, people don't want to hear that. Why? Because there's Christians in America, but they're lukewarm Christians. Satan has the American church right where he wants it. Stage one, he rocks the sleep to church, rocks the church to sleep. Stage then he moves to stage two. What is stage two? Once enough Christians are casual about their faith, he brings severe persecution against the church, causing many so-called Christians to denounce their faith or walk away. When it isn't convenient anymore, Christians flee their faith. And I'm afraid, Christians, by my studying of history, my understanding of where we are as a country, stage two is right around the corner. Many falsely seem to think that the rapture of the church is somehow going to save us from persecution. Now, that may happen. The rapture may just come and save us from any severe persecution. The rapture might come before our religious liberties are stripped away, but we have no guarantees of that. Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ stood for you when you deserved death. He stood for you even when it cost Him His life. He will stand for you one day in the clouds and will call you uh, to be with Him in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. And He calls you to stand for Him. This year we will highlight four series on Sunday morning. Uh, here, here are the four series we'll look at. Number one, stand with conviction. That's the one we're beginning today. In the spring we'll look at this thought, stand with courage. You know, even the Apostle Paul at times found it hard to have courage. In Ephesians chapter 4, he asked the church of Ephesus to pray for him that he would have boldness to stand for what was right. Have you ever found it difficult to take a stand for what's right? I have. Oh, I sure have. Um, And I'm the pastor, and I find it at times hard to take a stand. The third series we'll look at is Stand with Commitment. Stand with Commitment. And then we'll finish out the year with this series, Stand for Christ. Each series will have four or five sermons in them, and then we will finish the series by looking at a biblical character who embodied that part of standing well. And I believe uh, when we get done with Stand with Conviction, we're going to look at the life of Esther, Queen Esther, and saw how that woman had conviction, and she took a stand in the face of all kinds of danger, and we'll highlight her life and how she stood with conviction, stand with conviction. What does it mean to have conviction? There are like uh, many words in the dictionary. The word conviction has many different definitions, but notice this definition for the word conviction. It is a fixed or firm belief. A fixed or firm belief. Have you, uh, have you, do you have anything in your life that no matter what anyone was to say to you, no matter what evidence they seemed to bring to you, no matter what, you are so tunnel visioned on what you believe that you are convicted beyond all shadow of a doubt and nothing can change your mind. Christians are to have a strong conviction. A conviction is something that no matter how persuasive someone on the other side may be, no matter the argument or no matter the brute force used to try and break you, you have a deep-seated belief that cannot and will not be abandoned. No matter what it takes, you will stand for what you believe. Now listen, anyone can stand when it is popular to stand. Most, if we're being honest this morning, most only stand when it is popular to stand. You know what we call them? 
populists. Populists. Anyone can be a populist. Yeah, how to be a populist? Let me show you right here. Watch. Which way is the wind blowing today? All right. Oh, that's what I think. Sounds like a lot of politicians, doesn't it? Right? Okay. And by the way, on both sides of the aisle, sounds like a lot of politicians. Christians, we're not to stick our finger in the air and figure out what's popular. Truth doesn't bend. You know why the Bible is relevant today? You listening this morning? You know why the Bible is still relevant all these thousands of years later? Because truth is truth. Whether it was 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, or today. Truth uh, is, 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 is relatable. Truth is reasonable. Truth is applicable. Truth is practical. And when we live our lives by truth, when we hold up truth, it stands the test of time. We hold the Bible high and we, hold, we look at the Bible and we find that it is still relevant to the culture today. Now, it's not always easy to stand for what's right. Have you ever been in a spot where you were uncomfortable because of a stand that you took? Now, let me give you a carnal example first, if I could. I'm a big baseball fan. I love baseball. In fact, one of my favorite sports venues to be in, uh, if I had to pick one that I could do consistently or regularly, I would probably enjoy most uh, going to a professional baseball game. I love the environment at a professional baseball game. And Matthew and I like to go to the various stadiums. I've taken them to the two stadiums in New York City, uh, Mets, uh, where the Mets and the Yankees play. I've taken them up to Boston, and we've been to Baltimore. And this year, coming up year, once they open the stadiums, we're going to try to get uh, to a couple of other stadiums. And we really enjoy that kind of thing. And you know what? I, I'm a big Orioles fan, and I enjoy going and watching them play. They usually lose, but I enjoy watching them play, and we have a great time. And one time, I was at Camden Yards when the Yankees were in town. Now, how many of you here either cheer or root for the Yankees or Red Sox? Would you raise your hand if you cheer for one of those two teams, Yankees or Red Sox? Not a lot of sports fans in this church. Brother Ordonez, you're brand new to America. Brother, you cheer for the Orioles. Amen. I need somebody here that will join my team. Amen. Don't, don't choose anyone around here. You be with the pastor. Someone's got to help out the pastor. Amen. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, look, I'll even pay your way. We'll go to an Orioles game, okay? Amen. All right. So I got one guy on my side. Amen. Uh, but uh, Yankees and Red Sox, notice I didn't ask you separate who's a Yankees fan and who's a Red Sox fan, because then we would have had a church split. You know, Yankees and Red Sox fans don't like each other, right? They just don't like each other. Now, I'm interviewing Brother McGuire over here to come uh, work on our church staff, possibly. But he's got one strike against him. I'm a big Ravens fan in football. He's a Steelers fan. I know, right? <laughs> So um, now you have the whole church, amen? I'm not the only one. Miss Rose right here is a Steelers fan, so you sat in the right row. All right. But uh, here's where I'm going with this. I was at an Orioles game one time. They were playing the Yankees. And the Yankees had just been beaten down on the Orioles for years. And they still do beat down on the Orioles. I can't stand the Yankees, amen? And they have a word they put in front of the Yankees, but I'm not going to use it because we're in church. Uh, but anyway, there, there I was in that stadium, and the uh, Yankees were, were playing the Orioles, and it was a tense game. And you know what? I watched a fight break out between an Orioles fan and a Yankees fan. That Yankees fan was in the stadium. He was sitting a bu- around a bunch of Orioles fans, and he was taking a stand for his team, even when it wasn't popular. And, boy, they came to fisticuffs, and security had to escort them out of the stadium. You know, it's not always popular to take a stand, but what's funny is that people will take a stand about things that don't even really matter. 
taking a stand for Christ matters. Let me give you, give you some examples of places and ways you can take a stand. How about this one? Departing from a family reunion on a Sunday afternoon so that you can leave for the Sunday evening service while you're being called a fanatical for your faith. How about this one? Refusing to go to a work party because alcohol is served. How about this one? Witnessing for Christ in a godless work environment. You say, oh, you're a preacher. You don't know anything about that. I've worked my share of secular jobs. I've witnessed on the work, job, work site. How about this one? Carrying a Bible. This is for the, the school-aged kids, the teenagers here. Carrying a Bible to school and reading it during study hall. Wow. That may not be popular. How about bowing your head and praying in the work lunchroom before you eat? You know, the truth is, most people go along to get along. We call this being a people pleaser. A people pleaser. If you're going to be a people pleaser, then you'll never stand for Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that causes someone to take a stand for Jesus? What is it that causes someone to do that? It's not easy. You know, I believe someone who takes a stand for Jesus has a deep-seated conviction tied into their identity. And when that conviction is challenged, they stand up for their conviction. Let me give you an example of maybe some button I could push to get you to take a stand. All right? How many of you here this morning love your mom? Raise your hand if you love your mom. All right. I hope you love your mom. Okay? Some of you didn't raise your hand. You must be sleeping. Amen. All right. No, I get that there's some rough home situations and maybe somebody here uh, has a problem with their mom right now. If that's you, I don't want to come across as insensitive. Uh, um, we, we love you. But um, most people here love their mom. Would you let someone talk bad about your mom? Would you take a stand if it was uncomfortable? Someone was running down your mother? You think things might get a little awkward if someone was talking about your mom and you said, Hey, knock it off! I'm going to ask a difficult question. Do you love your mom more than you love Jesus? The reason we don't take a stand for Christ is because we really don't love Him as much as we ought to. If we are going to stand for Jesus, then we, might not, we must not only know that we love Him, we must know why we love Him. We stand with conviction, but we must stand on biblical principles. I propose that many Christians do not stand because they are not persuaded in their own minds that Christ is worth the stand. Many Christians lack a deep-seated belief in the principles of God's Word. Their relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible, and the church is shallow at best, so their stand is also shallow or non-existent. I propose that if you will fall in love with who Jesus is, the living Word, fall in love with the Bible, the written Word, and fall in love with the church, God's provision for your protection and growth, then you would have no problem standing for Jesus. Let's look closely at four thoughts this morning out of Philippians 3 as we preach on this topic of standing 
with conviction our principles. If you received a bulletin this morning, I would encourage you to flip that over on the back. There is a fill-in-the-blank outline, and I would encourage you to take notes as we go. All right, point number one, notice the word value, value, all right? Look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 3. Philippians 3 verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Notice those phrases, rejoice in who? In Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Notice both in this verse and and the next that we will read here in a moment that the Christian value is not in our flesh but rather in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Paul said, the things that were important to me, my flesh, I counted those loss for Christ. Look at down at verse number 10 and 11. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain or arrive unto the resurrection of of the dead. Paul said here that I I tell you my goals in life. Paul said I want to know the power of the resurrection of Christ. I want to know the fellowship of what it means to suffer like Christ. I want to know Christ when it's popular. I want to know Christ when it's unpopular. I want to know Christ when I'm standing on a mountaintop experiencing the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ in the valley when I'm suffering like he did. Paul said I want to know Christ, and I want to value my Christ. What is it that you value this morning? What is it that is important to you? You show me what that is, and I will show you where you are willing to take your stand. There are some things which Bible-believing saints ought to value. Why? Because the price that was paid for them was very high. Notice letter A, the price paid for your salvation. The price paid for your salvation. What is the price tag of sin? It's death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What is the price tag of sin? It's separation. Revelation 21 verse 8 says they'll be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. What is the price tag of sin? It is the wrath of God against you. What a powerful force. God is a passionate being. And my friend, you can't straddle the fence with God. When you die one day, you're either going to land under His passionate love or you're going to land under His passionate hate, His passionate wrath. But either way, it's going to either be really good for you or really bad for you. If you die with sin on your record, you are going to experience the wrath of God. What's that look like? It's hellfire. It's damnation. It's condemnation. It's eternal suffering. It's eternal torment. It's an eternity of fear. It's an eternity of regrets. It's an eternity of lust. It's eternity of eternity of your thoughts plaguing you forever and ever and ever. What did Christ have to give up in order to save you from such severe consequences? Well, He left His throne in heaven to be born to simple parents. Isaiah chapter 53 describes Jesus for us. It paints a bleak picture. It makes him look not so attractive, not so popular. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. The Bible says that we hid, as it were, our faces from him. 
The Bible tells us that his appearance was not comely. What did Jesus have to go through in order to pay for your salvation? Ephesians 4 tells us that when Jesus died, he descended into the lower part of the earth. Look it up yourself if you don't believe me. What's that mean? That means that Jesus dipped his soul in hell for you and me. What did it take? What was the price tag for the gift of salvation to be freely offered you? It took God bankrupting heaven and allowing the horrible trauma of His Son suffering through the most humiliating death possible. It took God gathering every lie you've told, every sin you've committed, every trespass, every iniquity, every evil deed that you've ever performed in your life between your birth date and your death date and then multiply that by all of the sins of all of humanity no matter how atrocious they are. God gathered them together and He laid them on His Son. It took God the Father breaking unity with God the Son, for just a few short hours on that cross. Many of us do not value our salvation like we ought to. Many of us take for granted eternal life and all that it entails. Watch this this morning. Watch this. Listen closely. Many of us have a head knowledge that we are saved, but our heart has grown cold toward the gift that Christ gave us. I'm afraid many of you rarely think about your salvation outside of church. You take advantage of the welfare of God. His blessings are new every morning. But many of us, many of you act like an entitled, spoiled, rotten child when it comes to God's blessings. My friend... You and I, you want me to tell you what your rights are? I have rights. You know what right you have? You have the same right I have. You have the right to go to hell. Those aren't my words. Those are the Lord's words. Why? Because you're a sinner just like me. If you're here today and you're not going to hell, you know why you're not? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, the Bible says, But God. Aren't you thankful for God? Aren't you glad He's not just a God of wrath, He's also a God of love? But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. By grace are you saved. God looked down on this old boy and He saw that he was lost in sin and heading to hell. And God, in His grace, He reached down to the lowest pit and He pulled me up and He saved my soul. And I'm going to heaven because God is good. Aren't you thankful that the Lord was willing to pay the price for your salvation this morning? Letter A, the price paid for your salvation. Do you value it? 
Do you value it? You see, if you value your salvation, you think about it. If you value your salvation, it radically changes the way you live. If you value your salvation, it reaches into the every corner of your life and it dictates how you live and how you talk and where you go and how you behave and how you behave in your marriage and how you behave in your parenting and how hard you work and what the way you live and the way you take care of your home and the way you're respectful uh, to, to the world around you. You see, if the Lord really has reached down and saved your soul. You think about the Lord regularly. You thank Him regularly. And you praise Him often. You see, today I believe many Christians struggle with carnality because they don't really value their salvation. Let her be the price paid for your Bible. The price paid for your Bible. Jack Hiles once said, before the first words of Genesis 1-1 were penned on earth, the last words of Revelation 22 21 had been penned in heaven. God wrote the Bible as an instruction manual and love letter for mankind. It provides for us the miraculous story of God's redeeming plan to buy us back after we were lost in sin. Now, the Bible is a love letter. It's, it's, it's an instruction manual on how to live. It also provides for us, watch this now, basic instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Hey, you better get to know your Bible. It tells you how to live. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you value your Bible? When I was a little boy, there was a man that sat near us in church, and he had a Bible. It was a nice Bible, but the cover was just weather-worn. It was sun-bleached. And I used to think, man, that guy's a really, really good Christian. His Bible's all wore out. And I heard someone say one time, if your Bible is a mess, your life probably isn't. And this guy's Bible was a mess. And I thought, man, this guy's godly, right, to the max. Look at this guy. And uh, one Sunday morning, I walked by uh, his car, and he had had forgot to bring his Bible. And you know where his Bible was? It was sitting in the dash, between the dash uh, and the windshield. And, And I could see, you know, sort of where the shadow fell on the front of his Bible, and the sun had bleached just that area. And I said, ah, this guy keeps his Bible on his dash every week. Maybe that's why it's weather-worn. And then I was in Walmart a, a while later. I went to Walmart with my parents, and we walked by the guy's car. He happened to be at Walmart. And it was like a Tuesday or something, middle of the week. And you know what? His Bible was right there. You know what I figured out? He put his Bible there on the dash on Sunday morning, and he left it there all week long. And then when he got to church Sunday morning, he pulled it out again. I heard a preacher say one time that some people, they don't touch their Bible other than at church. And so when they go to church, they pick up their Bible off the end table and they blow the dust off the top. Do you value your Bible this morning? Do you understand that there was a heavy price paid for your Bible? In the Renaissance era, the common man did not know how to read the Bible. I'm talking about the 12th, 13th and 14th centuries. But even if they had known the Bible, even if they had known how to read or write, the Bible was only available in Latin. This era became known as the Dark Ages. Why the Dark Ages? Here's why. Because when the light of God's Word is not readily available to the common man, great darkness fills its void. Enter October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther 
posted his now famous 95 theses on the door of his local Catholic church. The revolt against the church, the mass exodus of the Catholic church began and, uh, and, and an era began where the Bible would be translated into the common man's language. Luther would be responsible for the German Bible, but it was William Tyndale that suffered greatly as he worked to translate the Bible into the English language. One thing I've learned is that knowledge is powerful and the knowledge of God's word became more available to the common man as it became more available to the common man Satan would begin to lose his grip of darkness on humanity now Tyndale the, his translating of the Bible into the English language was not done with great ease in fact Satan persecuted him and did everything he could to keep him from translating the Bible he was a gifted man he was a linguist he spoke many languages as though they were his first language and he would become a fugitive for many years on the run and in and out of prison and doing everything he could to avoid persecution and even death so he could translate the Bible into the English language he managed to translate the entire New Testament and much of the Old Testament. Finally, in the city of Antwerp, a man by the name of Henry Phillips, who was a broken and distorted and manipulative man, tricked um, uh, William Tyndale into coming out of his hiding, and officers were awaiting to arrest him. Tyndale was condemned by decree of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at Augsburg in 1530, and on October 6th, 1530, in the town of Vivordi, Netherlands, William Tyndale was tied to a stake, strangled by the hangman to the point of death, and then burned in fire for doing God's work. It is said that as he met the Lord, Tyndale cried with a loud voice, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And God would do just that. God would hear his prayer. Just a handful of years later, King James of England would assemble a group of 54 of the brightest scholars on planet Earth. These men spoke fluent Koine Greek, and they would translate what we now know as the King James Version of the Bible, the very Bible that we use in this church and most of you have sitting in your lap. Do you value your Bible? Do you read it? Do you love it? Do you meditate on it? Do you memorize it? Do you allow God's word to control your heart? Mr. Tyndale valued it so much that he gave up his life in order for me and you to have a copy of it. By the way, most of uh, a, a good chunk of the New Testament, the translators that uh, King James hired, they took Mr. Tyndale's Bible and much of his translation has made it through the translators and into our Bibles. Mr. Tyndale is responsible, but boy, did he pay a price. I, I, I thought about, I couldn't find the video, but I thought about showing a video to you that I saw online some time ago of a Chinese church house that smuggled a box of Bibles in. Those people opened that box of Bibles and they're opening the box like a bunch of starving children getting a meal and they pick up the Bibles and they hug them to their chest and they kiss them with their mouth and 
tears are running down their cheeks because it is illegal in China to own a copy of God's Word. And they were able to get one. And we throw it around. We stack stuff on top of it. We lose it. We uh, uh, we, we let pages tear. And, and we don't value the Word of God. And my friend, one day, one day, it may be illegal in America no Bible. Do you value the Bible? You see, there's some convictions that we need to hold to. And Mr. Tyndale had the conviction that you and I needed a Bible in our language. He was willing to give his life for it. Letter A, the price paid for your salvation. Letter B, the price paid for your Bible. Letter C, notice the price paid for the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 tells us that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was used to purchase the church. The Bible says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which of the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. White Oak Baptist Church is not owned and controlled by Richard Lejeune. White Oak Baptist Church was not started by Barry Brown. Yes, he was the man that founded this version of the church, but the church was founded and authored and is owned and controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His blood that purchased this place. Church is a place where we come and we are uh, suited up and readied and then launched out into the world to do great things for God. There are three views that the American Christian, the Western cultured Christian has about church. And I'm going to use a ship or a boat to help you understand the three views of church. All right, watch this. The most popular view of church in Western culture is that of a cruise ship. How many of you here have ever been on a cruise? Raise your hand if you've ever been on a cruise. I can't put my hand up. I've never been on a cruise, all right? Um, a cruise ship. And some people love cruise ships. Other people think, ah, they're not all that cracked up. To, uh, not everything they're cracked up to be. You know, cruise ships, I've been told, are wonderful. they got swimming pools. And they've got entertainment. And they have all-you-can-eat steak and lobster. Can I get a witness? You know, a lot of churches try to be a cruise ship. And a lot of people pick a church based on how luxurious the church is. I need to see what type of coffee they serve at the coffee bar. I need to make sure their nursery is top notch. Boy, the preacher better not preach too loud. He better not preach too soft. He better not preach too long. But he better not preach too short. Boy, the pastor not just sit, better not sit in his office for a week. Because then he is ignoring his people. And boy, the pastor better be in the office when I drop by, or he's probably out playing golf. We want our church pews to be just right. Boy, I don't want to park in a spot too far from the building. Sure would be nice. I've been going to that church for 47 years. They should reserve a spot with my name on it. God does not want us to be a cruise ship. You know, cruise ship Christianity doesn't last when persecution comes about. The biggest churches today in America are cruise ship churches because they have the nicest. They're selling a commodity that people want to buy. Why don't Baptist Church, we're not to be a cruise ship. You know what, though? There's the other end of the extreme. The other end of the extreme isn't a cruise ship. It's a battleship. You know what a battleship is? Man, we go to war. Ah, blood. Guts, violence. Let me show you my cannon. Let me show you my torpedo. 
And, I, man, there's preachers, man, they get in the pulpit, and all they do is bloody, and they're belligerent, and they're mean. Now, look, I preach with passion, and I preach against sin, but I don't preach against people. I'm going to preach against alcoholism, but I'm not going to get up here and call an alcoholic a name. I'm going to preach against homosexuality, but I'm not going to get up and make fun of people that live in that lifestyle. All right? I'm going to preach against carnality, but I'm not going to call some preacher out who's carnal across town. That's not my place. A lot of independent Baptist churches have had a culture of being a battleship. You know what that creates within the church? That creates people who are battleship-esque Christians, and they attack each other. There's war in the church. God's not called us to be a cruise ship. He's not called us to be a battleship. What has God called us to be? He's called us to be an aircraft carrier. You know what an aircraft carrier does? It sits on the, away from war. If an aircraft carrier ever actually enters war itself, that aircraft carrier is in trouble because it's not prepared to fight a battle right there on the spot. You know what an aircraft carrier does? It sits miles away from where the war is taking place, and those ships land on its deck, and it fuels them, and the, the, those who fly the planes, the pilots, they get to eat in the mess hall, they get to sleep in the bunks, they get recharged, they get into those planes, and off they go, and they take the battle to the enemy. You know what White Oak Baptist Church is supposed to be for you, Christian? It's supposed to be a place where you come on Sunday mornings, and you come on Sunday nights, and yeah, you even come back on Wednesday night, and you get fed the Word of God, and you get charged up for the Lord, and then when the service ends, you take off out the door, and you take the battle to the devil. You take the battle to the world. You go and fight for the Lord. You take your stand for Christ. May White Oak Baptist Church be an aircraft carrier. Have you ever walked in the door feeling discouraged? And you walked out of the door feeling like, you know what, I feel a little bit better now that I went to church. How many know what I'm talking about? Boy, I felt that way many times. There have been Sundays I've got up here to preach and pastor was just not in the best of spirits. And sometimes I fake it and I act like I'm in a better spirit than I am. I'm in pretty good spirits today. But there have been times where I'm not always in such great spirits when I'm up here. But you know what, when I leave church, I always feel a lot better than I did when I came in. You know, there are times where you, you know, I have to be here. I don't have a choice, but you do. Unless you're a child, then you might be forced to come, amen? Uh, but uh, you get a choice. There ever been times where you were on the fence about going to church and you ultimately decided to go, and when you left, you said, boy, I sure am glad I went to church. There ever been times where you were on the fence about going to church and you chose to stay home, but then your day just got worse? You know what I mean? You know, I don't like waking up in the morning and having forgot to put my phone on the charger. Then the whole day your battery's dead. First world problems, amen? Some of you, you go weeks without charging up for the Lord, and you know what? Your battery's dead. Yeah. There is a price paid for the church. I, look, time does not allow me to go into all the details of the people that suffered for the church to be here, but trust me, much suffering went in for the purity of the church. Number one, notice value. Quickly, quickly. Number two, notice vitriol. Vitriol. Most of the sermon today was found in point one. We'll, we'll go through the rest of these points pretty quick. Vitriol, look at verse number two of Philippians chapter three. The Bible says, beware of dogs. I have a dog. You don't have to beware of my dog. She'll lick you to death. You ever had a dog that would, uh, you were afraid of? I, um, I've been bitten once or twice out soul winning for the church. All right? Not the best commercial to get you to go soul winning. Uh, but, uh, but it's happened. I had one visit I was making with Angela to a lady named Maria, Maria Rasuri. 
Uh, uh, and uh, she came to our Spanish church. And I remember she visited the first time. And Angela and I went out to visit her. She lived way out in the middle of nowhere. And we parked the car. And I got out of the car. I got about 10 feet from the car. And two Doberman Pinschers started walking toward me. And you know what I did? I froze. And I thought, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> you can come back now. I don't want to die. Not like this. And thankfully, as they got real close to me, Maria came out and called off the dogs. Wasn't good. You know, there are people in this world, they hate the Lord. Look at the rest of the verse. Beware of dogs. Beware of evildoers. Beware of the concision, those that divide. Paul tells the church at Philippi that there are some folks in the world who are going to oppose you. They don't hate you because of your disposition. They hate you because of your position. You believe in Christ, they hate you just for that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There's a spiritual war going on over our heads at all time between the forces of good and evil over uh, influence on each Christian. And my friend, there are dogs in this world. There are evil doers in this world. There is, our, there is the concision in this world. And they want to do nothing more than tear down your faith. Why the vitriol? Why the hate? Because Satan has a will that is in direct opposition to God's will. Hey, watch this now. Satan hates you. He hates you. Why? Because you were made in the image and likeness of God. And if you were saved, then you were made into a new creature, so he hates you twice. And he wants to destroy you. You know, Satan, what he does, he works just like Mr. Tyndale's friend. He cozies right up next to you. He acts like he loves you. And then, once you let your guard down, he pounces. Vitriol. Number three, notice the word vanity. Vanity. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul said here, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Paul, that's a bad idea. Look here, he says, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh. Paul said, I more. Paul said, you want to... Put credentials, fleshly credentials up. Boy, I can flash the credentials. But Paul said, there is that is in, with it, with it, in my flesh. He says in Romans, no good thing. I might also have confidence in the flesh. The greatest trap for most Christians is an attempt to live out the Christian values through the power of our own flesh. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you were born and raised in church? Would you raise your hand? If you're born and raised, hold them up for me. Hold them up, hold them up. Born and raised in church. Can I tell you what your greatest trap is? What I believe your greatest trap is? It's the same as mine. I was raised in church. It's the, it's the temptation to be a good Christian through the power of the flesh. Because since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, there's a good southern phrase for you. Since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, you've been singing, Jesus loves me and God is good. You know the Bible inside and out. You know what's right and wrong. It's really easy to say, oh, I got this. It's a great day in our lives when we learn that the Christian life is not about self-improvement through the flesh, but rather self-abandonment to the Spirit. Look at verse 15, Philippians 3. It says, 
Let us therefore as many be perfect or mature, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them, mark them uh, that walk at so as ye have us for and in sample. Look at those who should be your examples. Look here, for many walk, many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you, many walk even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. If you mark in your Bible, would you underline that phrase, enemies of the cross of Christ? I'm going to show you who is the enemy of the cross of Christ. Look at verse 19. Whose end is, underline the next word, destruction. Look at the next phrase. Whose, underline these next several words, God is their belly, their gluttons. And, underline this, whose glory is in their shame. They brag about their sinful living. And then we get a summary of who these people are in the last three words of verse 19. Look here. Who mind earthly things. Where were these people Paul was warning against? Can I tell you where I believe they were? They were part of the church of Philippi. You know what it means to mind earthly things? It means to live a life of vanity. I can see some of us getting to heaven one day, and God looks at you and says, tell me what you did with yourself. Tell me about your life. Well, I worked at this place for 42 years. All right, tell me what else you did. I bought a car that had three garages. Ooh. Three whole garages. I bought a luxury car. This whole place is made out of gold. Who cares? I was the captain of my sports team. Did you know once I went to a Super Bowl, I got to be in attendance. I retired and moved to Florida. Nothing wrong with Florida, amen? Glad, glad you get to live there. Picking on our guests today. Many people in Connecticut want to move to the Carolinas or Florida. And by the way, if that's God's will for you, by all means move. But some people, man, they, listen, we have this whole life we live with eternity in mind, and we work and work and work and work and work and work and work so we can have a vacation for 15 years. But what about the vacation in heaven forever? We get to heaven, and God looks at you, and he, He's going to look at you in heaven, and He's going to say, It's vanity, it's emptiness. You left it all behind. I heard about a man who worked hard his whole life to buy a Rolls Royce. He didn't buy just any Rolls Royce. He took that Rolls Royce and he gold-plated the inside of it. This was the nicest Rolls Royce that was on planet Earth at that time. And he had in his will and testament that when he died, he wanted to be buried in his Rolls Royce. And so sure enough, they dug a massive hole and they put him in there and put his hands up on the steering wheel and, and they, they buried him in that Rolls Royce. You know what? His dead carcass was in there, but he didn't get to take it with him. I know it's probably cliche at this point. I know you've heard me say it many times, but only one life, so soon it will last. So soon it will last. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Solomon had everything there was to have. Go read Ecclesiastes. I think it's chapter 3. He had everything there was to have. And he lists all the things he had. You know what he says? He says at the end of the... He says, it was all vanity. It was all a waste. You know, we stand with conviction on those things that are important to us. Are you more likely to stand up against a burglar who breaks into your house or someone who's defrauding the name of Jesus? Number one, we see value. Number two, vitriol. Number three, vanity. Christian, don't be vain. Number four, notice verdict. Verdict. And this morning, this morning, I want to bring you to a point of reckoning, a decision, a verdict. What is your conviction? Are you principled? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Is it down in your heart? I mean, is it deep in who you are? Does it define you? Look at verse 13 of Philippians 3. The Bible says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Paul says, I haven't arrived, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press, I push, I work toward the prize, toward the, rather toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Look down at verse number 20. Verse 20, it says, For our conversation or lifestyle is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, our vain body, our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Hallelujah. According to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto him. Christian, are you willing to take a stand? I want to bring you back to those three things under point one. Are you willing to take a stand when it comes to your salvation? Do you value it? I'm talking about the three principles that should define your life. A great price was paid for your salvation. Do you value it? A great price was paid for your Bible. Do you read it? Do you, do you abide by it? Do you live it? A great price was paid for the church. Do you attend regularly, faithfully? Does it mean something to you? Christian, are you going to stand with principles? Are you going to stand with conviction? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. First, let me ask this question. How many here would say this morning... Pastor Lejeune, if I were to die today, I am 100% certain beyond all shadow of a doubt that if I were to die, I would go to heaven. I've asked Jesus to be my Savior, and I've put my faith and trust in Him. I can take you back to a time in my life where I humbled my heart. I put my faith in Jesus and what He did on the cross. I called on His name, and Pastor Lejeune, I know that I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. If that's you, would you hold up your hand? If that's your testimony, amen. I see many hands. I don't see every hand. I see many hands. If you didn't raise your hand, let me thank you for being honest. You see, you can't take a stand for Jesus, truly, until you first become one of his children. How do you become a child of God? The Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that, listen, believe on his name. There must be a point in time in your life, a single point on the, 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 the map of your life, the timeline of your life, where you stop everything you're doing, you humble your heart, and you cry out to God, and you ask Him to save you. 
He doesn't care how good of a person you are or how bad of a person you are. His grace and His love are much greater than anything you could ever offer Him. His grace and His love are much greater than any sin that you've committed. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's a cleansing agent that can take out any sin stain, no matter how awful. What does God require of you to be saved? He requires a humble heart. He requires a heart of faith. He requires that you simply ask Him to forgive you. I think of the man who cried out, beat his chest, and he said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the attitude you need this morning. Who here this morning would say, Pastor Lejeune, I can't think of a time in my life that I've ever called on the name of Jesus. I don't know that if I were to die that I would go to heaven. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right where you are? I don't know that. Pastor Lejeune, would you pray for me? I see one hand. Is there anybody else? I just don't know that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I see another hand. Is there anyone else? How many have the courage this morning to be honest? I won't embarrass you. I won't call out your name. Pastor Lejeune, I don't know. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Anyone else? If you raise your hand, would you look up at here, here at me just for a moment? Everyone else, keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. Just those who, haven't, who don't know. Would you look at me here for a minute? Before you leave today, I want to have someone sit down with you and take the Bible and help you to get your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven when you die. Before you leave today, would you see me so I can help you to make that decision? I promise to be careful and discreet and kind, but would you give me just five to ten minutes of your time to help you to get that settled? Could we, could we do that after the service? I would appreciate that. I'll be standing in the back of the auditorium. Please come and get me after church so we can make that decision. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, thank you? How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, the, the sermon today woke me up to a realization that I don't value the things I should value. My salvation's grown a little cold in my heart. My Bible has sort of been collecting some dust. The church has kind of gotten old and stale to me. And I don't value it like I should. Pastor, pray for me that there will be a renewed effort to value those things. If that's you, would you slip up your hand this morning? Pray for me, Pastor. I need to value my Bible. I need to value the Lord. I need to value my salvation. And how many of you lastly here today would say, Pastor, I'm going through some difficult and challenging times in my life right now, and I need to know that my pastor is praying for me. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? I'm going through some difficult challenges. Please pray for me. Please pray for me. I, I, my heart hurts. My heart's heavy. Something in my life is difficult. I see your hands. Many of you, I know the situation. Some of you, I don't. And I'd be happy to listen to you and help you any way I can. I stand ready and available. I want you to know your pastor's praying for you. Lord, today, would you help those that are hurting? Would you come along their side and either calm the storm in their life or calm them while the storm rages on? Lord, teach them the lessons that you have for them during these difficulties. Help them to understand the power of the resurrection, but more important, the fellowship of your suffering as they suffer. Lord, help us all to value those things that are important and to live our life by strong principles. May we not be complacent and comfortable in our Christian life. Lord God, please help us and work in our hearts and work in our midst. And Lord, those two that raise their hand, stating that they're not sure about their salvation, may today be the day they get that settled. Lord, please, during this invitation, may we make decisions that please you. May we make decisions that last. In Jesus' name.